0: I've got all my Bibles out I had this awful anxiety dream in the week that I couldn't find two Thessalonians and I was like looking through about five Bibles like I can't find it and Sai came up and he couldn't find it, disastrous, so I've, I've had it ready open. Um, so I'm Anna, uh, I'm married to Sai. I'm on the leadership team here um, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm greatly distressed by the fact that my uh, husband, uh, that, well, he's wearing an amazing t-shirt this morning, I think he should show you, yeah. Two camels kissing. Yeah, it's from Djibouti. It's brilliant. Kisses from Djibouti. Kisses from Djibouti. I don't know about a camel kiss myself. I think it would be a bit disgusting. But it's a great T-shirt. He was like look at my t-shirt. It's brilliant. Um, So this morning I'm carrying on and doing the penultimate talk for the end of our series of Faith Through Fire, um, where we've been reading and studying one and two Thessalonians. It's been a great series, hasn't it? We've really enjoyed it. We've covered some difficult topics. Um, In Paul's second book to the church in Thessalonica, he actually identifies three groups of people who are really causing disruption in the church. And today, we're going to look at the third group. So firstly, you'll remember that in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul uh, was talking about people who are persecuting the church, um, which all of us felt relatively comfortable with because you're probably not someone who's persecuting the church. And then secondly, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul addresses false teachers. And again, most of you will feel all right with that because you're not a false teacher, so it's probably all right. And today I get the joy of looking at the third group, which may be some of you. So uh, (laughs) I'm so delighted with my husband when he came home this week. I was tempted not to open the door. It's like, you can just stay out there. Um, So shall we read together? 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 12. Let's read together. It says this. We're going to read it in two versions, actually, because it's quite a short bit, so we're going to read it twice. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, But with toil and labour, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I'm going to read it again in NIV, mainly because I found my pretty Bible again and I wanted to read from it, but also because it's helpful to read it more than once, so it's nice and ingrained in your brains. It says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, We command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right for such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are busy. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. So you've probably deciphered from reading through that twice that the third group that Paul is addressing in this second letter is a group who he refers to as the idol. Now, the Greek word for it will come up behind me, but I can't say it. So I'm going to tell you what it means. It means to play truant from school. I was a really good girl. I never played truant from school, um, but people do. And... uh, Hopefully my children don't. I wouldn't know, would I, (laughs) if they were? But I don't think they are. Um, But it means to play truant. Paul is addressing this small group of the church who had decided that because Jesus was coming again, they were just going to let go of everything in their life. They were not going to engage in everyday activities. And they were just going to sit around every day in complete idleness, waiting for Jesus to come back. They'd given up on work, and they'd given up on providing for themselves. And the implication of this passage seems to be that they were actually expecting other church members to pay for them while they waited for Christ's return without working themselves. They were also being disruptive by meddling in other people's affairs, being busy bodies, involving themselves in things that actually had nothing to do with them. I think we call it... Gossip, now, is what we call it. You know, I'm not really talking about gossip today, but I would just gently say, you know, gossip does so much damage to other people, to the church, and to the reputation of both the church and God's kingdom. It's really harmful. But, you know, when we're busy with our own everyday lives, when we're looking after our families, looking after the people around us... We don't have time to be meddling in other people's affairs or talking badly about other people or other churches or other believers. We don't have time for it. And actually, if you're humble and you look inside yourself, you would have the wisdom to not gossip because you know inside yourself there exists much more terrible things than what you're gossiping about. I can say that for myself. You know, it is really important that we don't have a reputation of being busybody believers. When we hear of high-profile personal disputes, or church movement splitting, or leaders falling, or families breaking apart, we let's not be those people who spend hours of our life reading into what's happened and looking for who was to blame and essentially engaging in sensationist gossiping, even if it might be Christian sensationist gossiping. The question to ask yourself is, Do I want to read, listen, or give my time to find out about something when someone's life has been hit by a disaster or has been failed, because I genuinely need to know what's happened in that situation, or have some idea of what has happened in that situation? Or do I actually just want to spend a little bit of time indulging in judgment and self-righteousness? Because essentially, that's why we all like gossip. makes you feel better. About yourself, just that's a little aside, just a little comment. Um, but this group of people, this little idle group of people, they sadly didn't do any work in either direction, didn't they? they? Didn't work for a trade, but they also weren't working for the church. They weren't working for the kingdom. And they were actually, by what they were doing, hindering the progress of the gospel and the church, and therefore, rather ironically. They were actually slowing the return of Christ, the very thing they were waiting for. Paul here, when he refers to work, he calls it several things. He calls it the tradition. He says they worked, It refers to it as toil and labor, working day and night. He doesn't make work sound that attractive, does he, as toiling day and night. Um, I used to work nights and it made me so grumpy. One night, I was really, really pregnant. I mean, just so ridiculously pregnant. I couldn't, I worked in ONE, so I couldn't actually like push the trolleys because my belly was so massive. I couldn't like, it's like this, trying to push trolleys. I went off to work and I was walking down the road because we, we lived on the same road as hospital. And I was like waddling down with that awful pregnant waddle like this. I was crying as I walked down the road. I'm so tired. I don't want to go. So I was like, nobody wants to go to work, Anna. We need the money. Get to work. <laughs> so full of compassion. And my waters broke the next day. I just want to say that, actually, publicly, that my waters did break. I did know I shouldn't be going to work that day. But what does Paul actually mean when he's talking about work and when he's talking about idleness? Because I can see some people are a bit panicked. Am I in the idle category? I'm not sure. But Calvin, who was a theologian in the 16th century a very long time ago, but actually his description of one that works is really, really helpful. He says this, anyone who benefits human society by industry either by ruling his family, administering public or private business, giving counsel, teaching, or in any other way, is not to be regarded as having no occupation. So that definition is so helpful because it helps us to understand that when Paul's talking about work, he's not just talking about paid employment. For some of us, it is paid employment For others, it might be that you're a parent who chooses to stay at home and raise your children. You are definitely benefiting human society. It may be that you're someone who's staying at home caring for your family members. You might be caring for an unwell spouse or parent or aunt or disabled adults in the family. You're not being paid for it, but actually that is your work. It may be that you're retired, but that actually you serve the church and your local community through helping out at various groups which benefit both the kingdom and the community. It could also refer to people who are choosing to work less or not work in paid employment, because financially, actually, you're okay and you don't need that extra income, but you want to serve the kingdom by volunteering consistently and reliably in the church and community activities. So do you get the point that I'm making, that it's not just paid employment? You know, Paul represents a really multi-stage solution to this group of people, I think Paul was quite a strategic thinker, wasn't he? Like, when you read his books, you can see he's, he's a logical thinker. So he, he gives us some stages. So the first stage, Paul um, Side talked about last week, and that's that Paul, he expressed his confidence in the church. He reminded them of God's faithfulness and protection so that they didn't become fearful. Then Paul goes on to handle the problem of the idol in a, in a few ways. So shall we look at those together? Firstly... In verse 6, he tells the faithful majority to stay away from or aloof from people who are being idle. When Paul says to stay away from them, he's not saying to completely ostracize these people. It's not an excuse to be rude to people that you find annoying, is what I'm trying to say. But he's meaning don't get mixed up with, don't spend hours and hours of time with people who are being idle because what actually happens is you end up agreeing with them and following their example and thinking, well, actually, I think I should also do this because this is great. I mean, I don't have to have any responsibility. I don't have to look after anyone. I don't have to do anything. I just can wait for Jesus to come back and I can, I can just go around and say, did you hear what happened in this church? Did you hear about that? Did you hear about Mars Hill in America? I mean, honestly, it's dreadful. You can just go around doing that. No. Paul... Has talked about this before to the churches. To the church in Corinth, he says this, 1 Corinth 15, an excellent parenting verse. Bad company corrupts good morals. It is something we relate to our children often. Bad company corrupts good morals. Paul reminds them that not only had they been taught the tradition from the apostles of working, which was actually a long standing Jewish tradition, but they had also set the example of working. Paul and those who were with him when they'd come to spread the gospel in the city had worked day and night so that even though they could have called upon the church to provide for them, they were spreading the gospel, and as Jesus had said to his disciples in Matthew 10.10, they could have asked for people to look after them, they chose to work. They chose to set an example and to provide a model for the Thessalonians to imitate. The theme of this teaching series has been, do we live as a people who people should imitate? Should people imitate you in all areas of your life? Are you a consistent person? Are you the same at home, socially, church, work? Are you the same? Are you really, really grumpy and horrible at home and at work? You're the chirpiest person anyone could meet. That's a good question. I ask myself it frequently. It depends what day you get me. Secondly, Paul then goes on to address the disobedient minority. This little group of people, this group who were not working. They were just hanging around, waiting for Jesus to do, not Jesus to come back, not doing anything, not working for the kingdom, not working in employment. And he encourages them and commands them in Christ. Christ, the Anointed One, who's the Savior of the church and has the capacity. And right to issue commands, he commands them, settle down, get a job, stop meddling, earn a living, and follow the example of Paul and the scripture to work. So why is Paul so adamant that we should work? Why is it so important? Does it really matter in our society? We have the benefit system, so, so you will eat. You will eat. So why should we work? What's the point of it? Paul gives the church this really interesting little saying. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, he says this If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. It's thought to be a phrase that was used, and it was like a little um, proverb or saying. You'll notice here, though, with this phrase, that Paul is saying, Anyone who is not willing, he's not addressing those who are unable to work people who are unable to work because of poor physical or mental health, who are unable to find employment. He's not addressing those people. And today, if you fit into that category of someone who is unable to work, don't feel condemned and don't think, oh, this doesn't apply to me in any way. Actually, you will find yourself in situations and with people that lots of other people will not find themselves with. God's given you a sphere of influence even in your illness God has given you that The principle here that Paul is getting across is about our will and our heart attitude if we can work We should work in some capacity. It might not be paid employment, like I said. It might be you don't need the finance from it or you're retired. So you actually choose to do more voluntary work, serving the kingdom through serving the church and the community around us. The principle here is that it is good to work when we are able. For some people, that might mean you can only do two or three hours a week. That's okay. It might mean you can only work school hours because you're a single parent raising your children by yourself. That's okay. It might be that actually because of your nature of illness or because of your mental health, you can volunteer to do things where actually it's not a pressure on you. But either way, our heart attitude should be that we are willing to work when we are able. Now, I'm a nurse, um, which I hope you've picked up by now, Um, And I could tell you all the research which really clearly points to the fact that working in some capacity is very good for our physical, mental, emotional, spiritual and social well-being and health. That is such an NHS phrase. As I said it, I heard it and thought, well, that that should be on a poster somewhere. Um, But I'm not going to do that because um, today I'm actually pointing you to scripture and what the Bible instructs. Our way of life, doesn't it? That's what we live our life by the Bible. Um, and it should actually be no surprise to us at all that our creator God knows what is good for us and how we should live our lives. King, um, work is actually a kingdom value. That's why we work. It's a principle of scripture that we should work. So let's have a little look through the scriptures so it's not just me whittling on at you. If we go to Genesis 2, verse 15, first book in the Bible, before the fall, when God said it was very good, it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to put up a hammock, have a lie down, and wait for the food to fall into his mouth. No, to work it and keep it. And then, in verse 20, when he creates woman... He created women to be a helper, to work alongside Adam, keeping and working the garden, and probably making it a little bit more pretty, I expect. I think so. You can see the same principle carried across the whole of the Old Testament as you read through the Old Testament. Proverbs is an excellent book. It's full of reasons why you should work, how the wise work, the principles that we apply in work, the need for justice, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So let's look at some of the Proverbs. So again, you haven't just got me telling you that it's true. You can read it yourself. This is quite a famous one, Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 11. It says, Go to the anthill, O sluggard, or idle, lazy person. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And then Proverbs 12, verse 11 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuit lacks sense. Then as we go into the New Testament, we can see that Jesus himself worked have you ever considered that? Jesus fed 5,000 men, that's excluding the women and children that were there. He fed them from a little bit of bread and a few fish. He could have just called bread down from heaven rather than working. He could have provided for his whole family just by asking God to put it on the table. and It would have happened. But actually he chose to work. Jesus was a carpenter before he went into his ministry. He, he probably was a carpenter for about 15 years before he went to his ministry at 30. This was his trade. He didn't need to do it. He did it to set us an example of human life, which is that we work. We participate in our society around us. Now, a little aside, I read this really interesting thing by Berkeley. So I was totally interested in it, so I'm going to tell you it, because I want someone to be interested in it. So I was reading a commentary. And um, it was quite good. But he, um, in this book, Barclay claims that there's a legend. It's not fact. It's not in the Bible. It's just a legend. It's very interesting, but it's just a legend. So I don't know whether it's true or not. I really want it to be true, but it might not be. That apparently Jesus made the best ox yokes in all of Palestine. And men came from all over the country to buy them. How interesting is that? I just thought, could you imagine buying an ox yoke that Jesus had made? And then when Jesus had died and you realised he's the Messiah of the whole world, the anointed one, you'd be like, this is my ox yoke made by Jesus. It has a little cross emblem on it. It's very important. I put my ox in it and they fly just across the field. It'd be amazing. Imagine how much you could sell it for. I'll tell you what, I give it to you for five times its value because Jesus himself made it. Um, Anyway, that's a total aside and pretty irrelevant to what I'm saying. But as we move on to the early church, we see and find in Acts that Priscilla and Aquila, who were tent makers, worked as tent makers as they expanded the kingdom of God by bringing the gospel message all over the world. They worked and spread the gospel. Then we move to to Paul's writings to the early church in Ephesians 4. He writes to the church and says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have means to share with anyone in need. In Colossians 3, verse 23, we're told, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as if you're working for the Lord. And then we have this in 2 Thessalonians that we're reading today, 2 Thessalonians 3 talks about the importance of working. And then the last book in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 3. Do you think you will not work in heaven? I'm going to tell you that you are. The saints of heaven will serve him day and night. You're not just going to be idle in heaven. It's going to lie around eating grapes all day. You're going to do stuff. That's what it's going to be like in the kingdom of heaven. Because before the fall, before sin entered the world in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were given work which was from God. It was fulfilling, invigorated, and it provided a sense of purpose. When sin came into the world... Man's job became more difficult, as God said it would in Genesis 3. The painful toil aspect that we experience in our day-to-day life is a result of living in the fallen world. But actually, when we go to heaven, we will work without that element of painful toil, without the tiredness, without the, I don't want to get out of bed, and the awful alarm. Our daughter has the most annoying alarm I mean, it's just so irritating, and she never gets up to it. It goes off for ages, and we're awake, and I'm like, a lot of us! turn off your alarm. There will be no alarms in heaven. Hooray, we all say. Amen. Um, work is a provision from God for us to eat, to drink, to have houses, to be clothed, to share food, wine, laughter with others, to have holidays, to have a life that is good for us. Work gives us stimulation, fulfillment, social interaction, purpose, enjoyment. You know, in lockdown, what did we miss? What did everybody miss? They missed being with other people. People who I speak to now, they love the fact that a lot of people's jobs now are you do some days at home and some days at work. Why do they want to go into work? Because they want to see other people. We're not made to be on our own all day, every day, locked away in our houses, not interacting with any other person. Did you know, uh, maybe it was just me, but by the end of lockdown, I mean, I had to go to work. I went to work. I was actually really relieved to go to work. It was such a joy. I'd skipped out, like, bye, Cy, si. enjoy the kids, bye. <laughs> oh, by the way, they've got homeschooling lessons. At 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, and 2. Enjoy! Um, And we only have two laptops. Bye! Um, But did you not notice that you just became so low-level? No energy, no stimulation in your life, no drive. Like, absolutely no drive to do anything. Work is good for us. Social interaction is good for us. It gives us purpose, enjoyment. The thing of being annoyed with your work colleagues, it actually drives you to work because you don't want to talk to them. So you work really hard. There's the joy of work. Work is good for you. Ecclesiastes, one of my favourite books in the Bible, which probably says something about me, but it also um, has some really interesting perspectives on work and everyday life. If you've had a really bad day at work and you're wondering what is this all about, read Ecclesiastes. It will help you. Our work enables us to provide for our families and to provide for the poor and needy, to provide for those people who are unable to work. You know, in the Old Testament, the Jews gave 10% of everything they had, (coughs) grain, cattle, wine, fruit, money, whatever it was, as a way of worshipping, recognising, and honouring the God who had given them everything they had. It was called a tithe. Our tithe today is... The same, apart from the principle of the New Testament, would be how much more. It's our worship, honor, and recognition of our God who provides everything that we have. Don't be fooled into thinking that you provide everything that you have. It is a gift from God above. He gives us everything that we have. To the one who has given us grace upon grace, kindness upon kindness, who's rescued us from our wrongdoings, who has rescued us from death itself and given us life in all of its fullness and eternal life with him. Out of the overflow of our salvation, that's what we give from. It's an overflow of what has happened in your life. We give to the one who's given us everything we have. And the amazing thing is, is that God rewards you for giving back to him what's already his It's incredible, isn't it? There's that proverb that says, he who lends to the poor gives to God. I mean, how ridiculous is that? How on earth can you give anything back to God when we give to the poor? That's how God sees your giving. It's such a gift to be able to do that. When you're feeling miserable at work, you remind yourself that your tithe is going to extend the kingdom. You might think what you're doing is insignificant, but actually the money you're giving is extending the kingdom. It's so important. Anyway, I'll bang on about it too long, so I'll move on. The second thing that Paul tells them to do and that he shows us is that work is important because it stops us being busybodies and causes us to be busy for the kingdom. When we're working, we are busy bringing kingdom values to our workplaces and to our spheres of influence. And we're busy serving him through the church as well. Christians should be the very best workers. You know, work doesn't give us our identity, but it allows us to demonstrate our identity as the beloved of God. It's your opportunity to show your identity A Christian is known by their fruits. Jesus said, by your fruits they shall know you. Well, these fruits should be displayed in our workplaces. Christian workers should be the most ethical, reliable, and conscientious workers. Is that how your boss would describe you or your other colleagues? Is that your definition of yourself when you're in your workplace? We don't take what's not ours because nobody will notice. We don't call in sick when we're well. I went into work on Monday. I think they would have preferred that I didn't it on everybody. I did ask for a lot of sympathy, to be fair. I was constantly like, I've got cold. It's a terrible cold, it's so bad. But you know, you go into work if you can. We work hard and we work well. And as the passage in Colossians said, we work as if we're working for the Lord in our workplace. Your boss may be a really difficult person. There are difficult people that we have to work for. And it is difficult sometimes um, if you've got a really difficult boss, but you're not working for them. You're working for Jesus. That's who you're really working for. And your boss might not say, well done, but Jesus does. And that should be enough for us, actually, that Jesus is pleased with what we do. Your workplace is your place of kingdom influence. It is your sphere of influence. When we're at work, we pray for people. People should know that you are a believer. You know, we need such wisdom, don't we? This, our society is totally anti-God. We need wisdom. We hit ethical situations where we need the wisdom of God to know how we tread this path of being totally sold out for Jesus and also living and working in the real world. You know, today, I just felt this really high challenge on us as a church, that how you live your life really matters. We need to hold work in a a really high view. We need to see our work as having eternal significance and reward. And our work should be marked and defined by kingdom values. You might think, my work doesn't matter. If you knew what I did every day, it's totally insignificant. I go into my job, I go home. And some days you feel like that. You think, I just go to work, I go home, and then I'm done. But actually, God wants you to know that how you work in your employment is one of the main ways that you reach out to people around you. If you work full-time, you spend more time at work than you do at home. You will see more of your work colleagues than you see some of the members of your family or your friends. And it is your responsibility to bring the gospel truth to the people that you work with. You know this week has shown us the time is getting short the people that you work with they are the people God has put in your path for you to tell them all about Jesus you know there is this real urgency over how we approach our work there's this increasing push in society. I don't know if you've noticed it on, um, on YouTube. We don't have the fancy YouTube. We have the cheap one where you get all the really annoying adverts all the way through. And whenever you listen to worship music, you'll be like, oh, this is so lovely. And then you have a stupid advert talking about. If you work for five hours a week, you can earn 100000 a month, which we would all be doing, wouldn't we? If I mean, I could work five hours a week and earn 100000 a month. But I don't think it's true, so I don't ever listen to it. But actually, there's a push that our life is all about comfort, wealth, security, pleasure. But actually, the kingdom of heaven is the other way round. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And he asks us as believers to work in his kingdom for him in the way that he worked. Paul showed that example. He worked day and night. I bet he didn't want to. I bet some days he just thought... This ungrateful lot, I don't want to do it. But he did. He worked day and night to bring the gospel. Often people ask, what is the purpose of my life? Well, let's look up Ecclesiastes 12. I'm going to finish here because I'm over time. Um, If we look up Ecclesiastes 12 together... I don't know, I just felt there are some people here that this week you've been asking, what is the purpose of my life? What am I doing? You know, sorry, I won't mind me using the example, but, you know, he goes to exciting places. It might be rough, some of the places go to, but it's exciting. You know, he gets on an aeroplane and he flies and lands in different places. On Monday, I had to ring my, are the children at work? Yes. Are the children in breakfast club? Good, okay, now I'm going to go to work. You do a day at work you come home and think what was that about what's the purpose of all this stuff that i'm doing this is your purpose in life as a believer it says this the end of the matter ecclesiastes is like this like philosophical book asking all about what's the meaning of life all the weird stuff that happens in life that you just think what is that about but this is his conclusion the end of the matter all has been heard fear god and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for god will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So you know what the purpose of your life is, the purpose of your life. Fear God, keep his commands, and live in a way that when everything that's hidden is brought out into the light, you are not going to be ashamed. That's your calling as a believer, and it's a high calling. And what was the last command that Jesus gave his church? The last command that Jesus gave us was, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit and making disciples to the very ends of the earth. That's the command that you're living and the place that you do that is in your everyday life, in your workplace. That's your place. That's your place that God has given you with the people that he wants you to bring into his kingdom. I'm going to ask the Worship groups come up, um, and just going to ask everyone to stand if that's all right. Oh, yeah, I need to move, don't I? i us move that way. You know, one of my um, greatest fears, I think, probably, is that when I retire, I will suddenly realise all the opportunities I had to share the gospel, and I didn't do it because. Actually, I'm not as brave as I would like to be in sharing the gospel. I spoke to someone this week who's suffered like a really catastrophic loss in their life. They're a believer. They love Jesus. um, And something dreadful happens and they just lost someone in the middle of no no warning. They just died. And they, instead of like wallowing in self-pity, which probably I would have done, they are spending their time saying to people, what are you going to do when you die? Where are you going when you die? They've just lost They've lost all the stuff that clings to us that just goes, oh, no, don't. Because they might think you're crazy. Do you know you're crazy if you don't tell people that Jesus died for them? If you know the truth and your friend doesn't and you don't tell them, who's crazy? Them or you? It's, It's you, actually, if you don't tell them. So I just feel this real call. We've got to be people who are urgent with the kingdom in our spheres of influence. And that looks different for everybody. How you work looks different for everybody. So shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for your kingdom. We thank you for your kingdom values. We thank you, Lord, for the provision of work. We praise you that we live in a country where we will get paid when we work. We know that that's a gift. We know that so many people don't have that. And Lord, we give back to you all that you've given to us. Lord, I pray for every person here. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, just fill them with your Holy Spirit and give them boldness and give them courage. Lord, help us to be a people that wherever we are, the kingdom values are displayed. That wherever, wherever we are, people know who you are and what you have done for them. Lord, I pray, help us to be people who are unafraid of the gospel and of sharing the gospel, who just tell it to everyone that we meet because we know it is the answer to their lives. Lord, I just pray for us. Would we see, each one of us, that one person saved this year that we will see brought into your kingdom? Lord, would we look around in a year's time and see our work colleagues, the people that we see, where the places that we volunteer, the mums from the school gate, the dads from the school gate, wherever we are, Would we see people in this building that we know actually by us being obedient to your commands and sharing the gospel with them, it has brought them into the kingdom of heaven. What a wonderful privilege we have from you to be involved in the salvation process in people's lives. And we pray this in your name. Amen. While I was preparing, I just felt God's um, give me a group of people that that I'd really think need to get prayer this morning. One is, I feel there's retired people here. And I, actually, I, I really believe that retired people are a real army for the kingdom, actually. Um, and that God wants to use you to extend the kingdom. But I feel there's some people here that you've had dreams. So God's given you, God-given dreams. And you've not been able to do them because of the restraints of work. But actually, God wants you to fulfill those dreams now and to step into them. It involves being brave because actually it would be nicer to just sort of have the traditional retired life, but actually God is asking you to step out and to do that dream. I also think there's people here who you're considering changing your profession and training up in a different profession. Um, And I just feel God wants to um, just meet with you today, give you a surety about that, but also to give you braveness and boldness. And I felt actually there's one person here who you have a massive, massive dilemma at work. It's an ethical or moral dilemma. And you know the right thing to do, but it is going to cost you and your family quite a lot. I just feel you need people to stand alongside you and just pray for wisdom and courage in that situation. But shall we worship? And if you want prayer, you can go to your left, my right.